Welcome to the interview series. The interview series is a production of One Week Critique, an Iowa-based 501c3 arts and education nonprofit that offers educational resources and literary support to students and teachers of the literary arts. You can learn more about our programs or support our work by visiting our Patreon page or by going to our website, oneweekcritique.com. That's the number, oneweekcritique.com. I'm Adam Alsergani. I'm chatting this afternoon with Aaron Olana. Erin Olana grew up in Connecticut and worked as a jazz singer before receiving her MFA in poetry from the University of Florida. Her poems have appeared or are forthcoming in the Yale Review, Agni, the Southern Review, 32 Poems, Subtropics, and the New Criterion, among other journals. She's a PhD candidate in poetry at the University of Utah and co-host of the film and literature podcast, Subtext. Today, we're going to look at the development of Erin's poem, The Swing, first published in the New Criterion, November 2019. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so Aaron, usually I dive sort of right in and ask you to read the draft version of your poem. Please forgive my dog running up and down the stairs. Um, uh, it might be helpful to readers and listeners um, to thinking about the development of this particular text to know some fundamental things about the poem itself. Um, so you describe the poem as being after Fragonard, mm -hmm. meaning the French painter Jean-Henri Fragonard. Um, this is an ekphrastic text. Uh, just so we're all on the same page, would you mind speaking to who Fragonard is, to what ekphrastis is, and how you took an interest in writing about Fragonard and his work? And I might add to the list, um, what is Rococo? Um, and um, why is it present here? <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so Fragonard is a Rococo painter, um, and Rococo is just an incredibly ornate style of 18th century art and architecture. So people should think of like the frilliest, fluffiest, pinkest cake they've ever eaten and multiply that energy by like 100, and that's Rococo. Um, everything is frosted, there's ornamentation on top of ornamentation, and it's very intricate. Um, but sort of dainty and delicate at the same time. So this is not the, the, the sort of the big grand dynamism of the Baroque style. This is way busier than that, but it also kind of lacks that ambition in a way. The scale is often smaller and it's more um, domestic, if you will, more intimate. Um, and so I, I find that style to be alienating. Um, so even though it's designed to be sort of domestic and intimate because it's so profuse, it kind of pushes against that intimacy and that kind of tension, I think is, is what I'm interested in. Um, you know, as far as like phrases, so that, so that's just any work of art, I think that describes another work of art. I think that's probably the most basic definition, but it's most commonly used to refer to poetry that describes or otherwise reckons with, um, some form of visual art you know, be it painting, um, a statue, a Grecian urn, right? Um, a building, um, what have you. Um, and I, I've been in, interested in ekphrasis for, I think, you know, as long as I've been writing poetry. And, you know, I think my first love was really visual art before even music. Um, and I find that my reactions to visual art are very emotional. And I think that, um, you know, any strong emotion is like a good engine for a poem. So 
Rococo and, and Fragonard in particular, frankly, both make me a little bit angry. I think this painting <laughs> makes me a little bit angry. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's, that's how this poem was born. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know what I expected you to say, but that's, that's coherent <laughs> to me. Okay. Um, uh, maybe it would be more coherent uh, to other folks if we take a look at your earliest version of this text. Sure. Cool. Okay. Um, so this is the, the first draft of the swing. Um, it's a little, you know, has, has a lot going on, but should I just read it aloud? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, the swing. Jejun profiterol in a prefab pastoral as rustic as a butterfly tattoo. There she flew above her something bed, bedspread, thread count, dread shred in her feminine domain a scarved lamp dampening the room in boudoir haze, list of other elements of room, everything pink, flounces, designer handbags, coach, Versace, cushions, jewelry, jewelry boxes, perfume, diet books, shoes, breakfast at Tiffany's poster, tiara, other elements of Audrey Hepburn outfits, French fetish, striped shirt, cigarette pants, one item should suggest man in painting who looks up her skirt, cast as preppy frat boys. Petite ami with Ivy legacies and fat trust funds asking for refunds. And revolving door of boyfriends steals men from other women. Me, I wind up alone, sitting by the phone, dull, play on more slash more. The hearts she kept in a drawer, blech. <laughs> how a speaker in her room okay that's it <laughs> um man uh i really like that poem. Uh, i like that version of the poem is <laughs> hearing you read it uh gives me a good giggle <laughs> i think i often i don't know that i get angry it, <laughs> I, like i think it it makes me laugh at the absurdity of it. And there's something over the top about uh, the way you've edited through that that <laughs> fits the vibe for me. Um, I think it might be helpful to other folks though who might not be entirely familiar with it. If um, we take a look at the, the artwork itself. Sure. Um, so I, as a note to those who are uh, listening, if you're doing that um, while driving or something, I'd encourage you to, to stop and, and Google it at some point. Um, I think this whole poem makes more sense if you're familiar with Fragonard. Um, sure. But, um, can you tell us a little bit about what you see in this piece and why it, um, why it interests you, what, what gets your ire of <laughs> about uh, this particular <laughs> Fragonard? Sure. Um... So it looks it looks tremendously frothy, yeah. right? Um, right? It's like a it's like a garden um, made out of latte foam or something. Um, <laughs> the the layers of green are rather you know they're rather beautiful, but I don't know any trees that look like this. Um, some some liberties are being taken, maybe some idealizing going on, and um, and that's fine, but it's a bit much for me. So that you know 
<laughs> I, I don't know that I'm like truly angry about this painting, but I think it's like a, kind of a funny idea that I am. So I'll go with it. Um, the centerpiece, of course, the thing that the entire painting revolves around um, almost almost like the trees are, are this sort of too ornate frame is the figure in the middle. Um, let's call her Fifi, right? She looks like a Fifi. Um, and she's, she's dressed in this, you know, little Bo Peep style of the day. And Fifi, as she's sort of nonchalantly kicking off her shoe, seemingly in this accidental gesture, or maybe just indicative of her carefree and sort of fun-loving personality, is actually doing something rather deliberate and calculated. At least that's how I'm reading it. Um, by tantalizing this, this gentleman on the ground uh, with a view up her skirt. And he's he sort of turned a little bit pink, um, you know, maybe flushed with excitement, desire, maybe um, borrowing a little bit of her energy as he enjoys this sort of secret rapport with her. Um, and meanwhile, that poor sucker uh, back here is, is he's doing all the work pushing her um, sort of forgotten and in the shadows. And then we have a little Cupid on the far left, um, one of several in the painting, there are a couple of other little Cupids around. Um, and he's instructing, you know, whom, I don't know, maybe, maybe Fifi or the, the guy on the ground. I like her name is Fifi now. I've just, you know, that's her name. Um, or, or maybe us, you know, maybe the viewer to keep this little incident under our little Bo Peep hats. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's as a painting, I think it's fun. And at the same time, it does, it does kind of rub me the wrong way for some reason. I don't know. Um, it's, uh, it's being coy. Um, it's certainly showing this, this rather calculated moment. Um, yeah, I have some complicated feelings about it, you know, reminds me of, of things that people do in situations. Maybe, maybe that means it's a good painting. I don't know. Yeah, I think there's, um, I'm interested in that read for many, many reasons, which I hope we'll uh, get into. Um, and maybe the best way to do that is to, to see how this poem turned out um, in its published mm -hmm. form. Um, and I'd add maybe that I hope at some point we'll get into that flying shoe and what its deal is. <laughs> for sure. Uh, would you mind reading us uh, the final version of this poem, the one that appeared in the New Criterion? Absolutely. And here is The Swing. Okay, The Swing, after Fragonard. Jejun profiterol in a prefab pastoral, as rustic as a butterfly tattoo. There she flew, over my roommate's desk, like a goddess of excess, blessing all that lay below a scarved lamp dampening the room in boudoir haze, Gucci bags, a frilly chaise on which she'd lay out pink nightgowns and lie, who knows why, about her age, my roommate, that is. The bloom could never come off that rose. Its genus, like Venus, bred from some soggy myth that grew to a labyrinth of fad diets, couture, Audrey Hepburn films. She yearned for her tiara'd twee and countless petite amis, all Ivy legacies with fat trust funds who succumbed to the lilt of her skirt, ruffling their polo shirts pink with desire. Meanwhile, I got the boot. Not astute, let us say. They never guessed that she was cleverer than they, never saw the wheels gritted teeth 
beneath her faux Rococo. Okay, thank you for doing that. Um, and I want to skip over the fact that, um, like a lot of Fragonard for me, I think like a lot of Rococo, maybe much more like Voltaire or Diderot, um, and the whole sort of late end of French monarchy aesthetic. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, it's a funny poem, right? <laughs> like um, that there's a, there's a sensibility of, of humor and tongue in cheekness that I really enjoy. Right? You begin with, um, I kept going over this a million times, right? I'm gonna pronounce all of this wrong. My mother, the French teacher would be very upset. Jejun <laughs> protiferol uh, <laughs> in a prefab pastoral as rustic as a butterfly tattoo. Um, which is both dense imagistically, mm -hmm. right? It's conjuring up a lot of sort of um, ideas that we have about things like butterfly tattoos and bad taste and, and all of that sort of thing. But it's also a whimsical, highly adorned way to call somebody a ditzy cream puff, right? And <laughs> um, I think that works because it's, it's funny and it's sad and it's, um, it's a commentary and it functions because there is a sort of melange of all of that happening in a really seamless way, which ultimately is my way of saying, I like this poem because it's complex and it's dense and it's funny and it's playful and it's musical and all of those things. Um, and I wonder if you can speak to how you worked through the mixing and the blending of all of that, how you found that balance, which obviously um, if you've, for those of you who have looked at Aaron's work um, in line, um, which you can find on our website, you can see that she's laid out a plan for how to put this in. Um, I'm wondering how you, Aaron, got there, um, how you mm -hmm. made those decisions. Um, and is that, yeah, how did you get from here to there? I think this is what I'm trying to say. Sure. On sure. Well, thank you for, for your compliments. Um, the, uh, you know, the word jejun um, is such a silly one. I really, and of course it's French, right? So I wanted to put in as much French vocabulary as I possibly could. And, uh, you know, I just got this, you know, um, the, these first few lines, really the first stanza just kind of came to me, sort of popped into my head or, or rather the first, you know, this, this idea of a jejun profiterol, um, just, came to me. And then the next line, I was like, oh, pastoral kind of rhymes with that, but it's kind of like a, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's already done. It's, it's like these figures are in a backdrop that's already been pre-planned put together. It's sort of like a prefab house. So I thought, okay, prefab pastoral. And then, um, as, as rustic as, well, it's not really rustic. So what's something that's sort of like fake and also sort of, you know, feminized and has certain negative connotations perhaps. And then I just came up with the butterfly tattoo. And then, you know, so, so this, and, and, and she's flying, you know, she's sort of flying through the air as part of the swing. And then I was stuck for months. I really did not know where to go with that. Um, so, you know, lest it sounds too easy that I, that this, <laughs> this first stanza just, um, you know, just goes, sort of came out of nowhere. I realized I didn't have anywhere to go with this. I didn't know why I was describing this, this 
uh, painting, um, I, I had a particular kind of person in mind and maybe a couple of particular models of uh, you know that sort of figure. I think we all know um, maybe somebody somebody like this in a TV show or something like that. You know the sort of like accidental the whoops like oh my shoe just came off and you just saw up my skirt. Oh well you know not that obviously that exact scenario, <laughs> but um, you know so so I wanted to maybe like interrogate like why why did this poem anger me so much and I didn't really know and I thought you know maybe if I connect it to someone you know, an actual figure who just happens to have this poster on their wall, you know, maybe I'll, um, and I had a t-shirt of this painting, by the way. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm implicated in this as well. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, figuring that out and figuring out where to go with it took me a really, really long time. Um, and the, really the hardest problem or the thing that I most had to figure out is the line, that last line of the draft, which is how is, how is the speaker in, in this room? Um, it's a really practical problem. Um, and then once I decided to cast this person as, as the roommate of the speaker, then everything kind of came together for me. Um, I don't know if that, did that answer your question? I think that, that answered my question. It opens okay. up a lot of new questions for me. Sure. Yeah, I think it's, um, I always get educated about how other people think about writing poems by um, by doing interviews like this, by talking to people. And I think when I first encountered this poem, um, I, I think I automatically assume, right, which is part of like thinking out the artwork that you just knew someone who had this poster on your wall. I wouldn't have guessed that it was uh, a shirt you had in, uh, you know, 18th century French art I've spent time looking at. Somehow I've missed this one. And apparently it's like the one of Ryan Art. It I is. Mean, it had it had words superimposed over it that said, um, so fly. <laughs> <laughs> I bought it ironically, but then I realized that I liked it a little too much for it to be ironic. <laughs> this is embarrassing, but what do you, what do, you do? <laughs> <laughs> well, moving on. Um, so you host uh, the, the podcast. Sorry, I'm going to stop laughing. Um, you host the podcast subtext. Um, and in one of the episodes, you actually talk about Apocalypse Now. Uh, mm -hmm. that, you do a, an episode on Heart of Darkness. Uh, but in the Apocalypse Now episode, you spend a little time speaking to your role as a teacher of young men and your concern with, forgive me if I wrote this quote down wrong, ethics of visual consumption. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, I'm reminded of that when I'm encountering your poem for a number of reasons, right? This is a poem about, you know, it is a drastic, so it's looking at something very directly, um, but also because of the, the countless BTME, um, the who succumbed to the wilt of her skirts, um, because you're playing with some tension um, in the painting between the roommate and her boyfriends, there's that phenomenal blending at the end of the roommate and the painting itself and a kind of loss of knowing with what we're in reference to. Mm -hmm. um, and between the speaker and her sort of judgmental vibe about the twee decadences, um,
I, I've written this down. I still don't know if I've got this question exactly right. So forgive me. I'm, I'm interested in your ideas about the ethics of visual consumption. And while there's an obvious thing going on here where there's a, you know, kind of barrier between ourselves as readers and the image of the swing and the image of this woman and her boyfriends written out. Um, I think there's also something highly engaged with that ethics of visual consumption and the questions mm -hmm. of what it is to, to have a t-shirt that says so fly or to, um, and that has this painting on it or of looking at this painting and, you know, whether or not you're sincere about your hate of this painting, right? Like, um, of that engagement. I'm hoping that you can lay out for us a little bit about uh, what is an ethics of visual consumption? How does it play in here and into your poem? And uh, why is that important? Mm. Yeah, you know, I, I, um, I say these things and then, you know, like ethics of visual consumption. And then I, I fail to write the accompanying manifesto, which I feel like would be really helpful. <laughs> um, but, uh, but to take a whack at what I think I might've meant, you know, at the time, um, I was, I was still teaching at this all boys school. Now I've, I've since moved to Salt Lake city and I'm no longer teaching there though. I loved it. Um, it was really rewarding. And I would, I would go back and, and teach there again, once I'm done, uh, with my PhD, but, um, uh, but all that to say, I'm no longer teaching these young boys, but I think it's something that gets, um, you know, it's, it's more apparent when you are teaching teenagers of any persuasion, um, you know, uh, but this happened to be an all boys school. Um, and seeing the extent to which they were on TikTok all the time and on Instagram and the, the lack of curation, um, I think, in terms of what they were exposing themselves to and what the culture was exposing them to. And I'm not just talking about, um, you know, sex and violence and all that stuff. Um, you know, I, I remember being a, uh, being a young kid and uh, once an adult in sort of a mentorship role to me remarked um, that she doesn't like, she didn't like watching television because it was so ugly. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and this was back, back in the day when people were still watching regular TV, right, right. with commercials and all that. And, and that she couldn't even watch news shows because she thought that it was ugly, the way the ticker tape and the, you know, the, 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 the logos everywhere. And I had just never considered that before, you know, and I thought, how many things do we just let wash over us that we never even consider what we're looking at and how it's tuning our, our eye and how it's affecting the way that we view things without even questioning it or realizing it. Um, and so I think that's what, you know, having that kind of questioning role or that questioning attitude is what I was really encouraging in my, in my students um, and that's not really, you know, an, an ethics um, because it's, you know, I don't know what the answer is to that. Um, but maybe the answer is just to continue to question it or to be more mindful about what we, um, what we consume through our eyes. And and so the the painting is so much about looking and and you know there, there's obviously the implication of infidelity here. I think that the person pushing is probably a husband or, you know, um, so there's this, this infidelitous relationship. There's the, um, you know, the invitation of, of the, of the gaze. Um, there's the, the, the curation of, 
what's going to, what the guy on the ground is going to look at. Um, there's this, you know, we're implicated in it as the viewers of the painting, right? Because we're in kind of the same situation as, as this guy on the ground, you know, maybe this is supposed to invite us to go, hmm, you know, can you really, can you see anything? In there? <laughs> What's going on, right? Um, and of course that's a crisis, right? That's, that's the ekphrastic mode too. Like we're in that position of looking, um, but ideally we should be looking and questioning. We should be looking and saying, not just, gee, can I see your underwear? But, you know, um, what's going on here and why? And so I think all of this, I think, you know, all of that to say, I think that's a really good question. And I think that um, it's something that, you know, that I haven't worked out yet, but that I think is, is important to interrogate um, both as a poet and just as a person in this highly charged visual world that we're living in. Yeah, I'm really fascinated with this. I think in part, um, I, I listened to that episode of your podcast and then sat down and rewatched Apocalypse Now for the first time since I was like 13. Mm -hmm. And it's a very different experience in terms of like um, how I relate to the violence and how I relate to the, a lot of the imagery in that film, right? Uh, and I'm not gonna go too far down that hole, but I do think there's something uh, not mirrored in any way, but something very, uh, confounding and disturbing about the role of being a voyeur in a voyeuristic painting mm -hmm. and watching that happen, right? It's not basic instinct. You're not like looking up her skirt with the camera lens, but you are watching some overly aroused like Cupid figures and, and all of this other kind of stuff um, and figuring out how to relate to that as a viewer and why you're relating to that as a viewer is a a confounding thing in and of itself, you've done this fantastic thing to then layer on top of that, right? Like both watching that and then have someone watching the watching of the watching. <laughs> um, right. and, and to add a, a certain kind of insight into what all of that means, um, that is also still a little bit shielded by mm -hmm. the opinions of that viewer. So let's take a peek at what you've done to engage some of the issues to develop the swing over time. Um, in particular, I'm interested, right, like in your narrative process and how you've sorted out some of the logical elements of the poem um, in that way. Um, you've obviously, we've talked a little bit about your early notes um, and figuring out how to end the poem in particular. Um, and you point to your own intentions of listing what's in the room, what's, you know, the sort of transition from objects to the meaning of objects in terms of the, the boyfriends, their lust. Um, and I think you, you know, you think about poem in a way that has a sort of Frey tags triangle about it, right? The introduction mm -hmm. and this like climaxing toward, and you do have this um, this resolutionary moment, maybe mm -hmm. at the end. Um, I'm hoping that you can tell me a little bit about um, 
why this is a narrative poem as opposed to sort of an observational one. Are you always sort of a narrative poem writer? Um, and how you approach sort of figuring out how to tell that story and why mm. that story in that way. Sure, yeah. Well, you know, like I said, I struggled with this poem for months, somewhere between six months and a year, I think it took me from this first draft to the final draft, uh, not actively working, but I would just, I would work on it and then I would get frustrated and say, I didn't, I don't know where to go with this and shelve it and not think about it for a few months and then come back to it. And uh, most of my poems, I don't write that way. So this was unusual. Um, you know, so that, that problem I think that I had was a narrative problem because I was, you know, narrative is not my strong suit at all. I'm, I'm a lyric poet. Um, that's why I like phrases so much, right? It's the opposite of narrative. You're, you know, you're stopping and looking at something, but, uh, you know, you forget how complicated that can be. Um, you know, the, the eye of the speaker isn't just looking, it's, it's, it's seeing, it's reading an image, right? Um, in this instance, it's literally looking around a room. Um, and taking a certain route to do so, which is, which should be ordering and purposeful. Um, and then we have a moment of, you know, or, or we, we have a, um, a threads of emotions that are supposed to be happening too in, in, in reaction to what the speaker is seeing. Um, there's a lot of judgment going on here with the speaker. So there must be a history between them. So all of these things invite, I think, questions of narrative. Um, why is the speaker here? Why is she so judgmental, right? Uh, what's the relationship between these people? Um, and I, I couldn't answer those questions for so long um, as expeditiously as I would like. I just, I, I just couldn't figure out why the speaker was in the room, um, why the speaker would be so judgmental if she was in her room, because that would imply a kind of relationship, a friendship. Um, and that's, that's when I got the, the roommate idea, which, which cut that narrative heavy lifting down to a certain extent. And the focus could remain where I wanted it, which is not on backstory or explication, but I suppose on, on this sort of psychology by way of ekphrasis, um, how this woman can be ascertained through her possessions. Um, and then with that hurdle cleared, I was able to kind of trudge through the rest of the poem. And then, you know, the, the, the items suggest things. So this idea of, you know, the, the, the Audrey Hepburn thing or the, you know, the French thing, um, all of these things were su suggestive to me of a certain kind of woman who would want a certain kind of guy who have a certain kind of relationship. And of course, the, you know, the men are figure in the original painting. Um, so how I could approximate the kind of the triangulation of, of the relationships in the original painting through the stuff um, that we see and, and get at it that way. And then, you know, I realized too, when you get to the end of the poem, how ungenerous it is, I think, if you're going to criticize something, for me anyway, I have to get to a point of appreciation or admiration at the end of the poem. Um, I think otherwise, if you can't find something to admire, then you're not you're not doing it right. You're not thinking through it all the way. And uh, so I had to get to a point of admiration. Um, and that took me some time too. And then I realized how incredibly smart <laughs> you have to be and how incredibly uh, savvy you have to be about people in order to have this kind of positionality of this woman on a string, on a, on a swing, <laughs> on a string, on a swing who has everyone around her, um, you know, everything working for her. 
Yeah. Right? Uh, that, that, that takes a kind of a savvy that I don't have. And so, uh, you know, the speaker has to be in a position of, um, you know, they're, they're, they're being judgmental, but why, what's their, what's their skin in the game. So they have to be in a lower position, I think, than the person they're criticizing. And then they have to come around to that admiration. I think that's, that's important to me anyway, in a poem as it, and it's, it makes a good arc because it's a little surprising at the end. Yeah. I just read Gregory Pardlow's air traffic and mm. mess up his description of this, but, um, he describes feeling betrayed by poems that don't have a turn of some kind. He feels like mm. his time has been wasted by it. And I think there's, I mean, there is something really interesting about the way that you approach this poem in terms of, um, I think if you just read the first stanza, um, there's something sharp and strange and almost like reading Clark Coolidge or something, right? Like it's almost mm. a like, poetry aspect of, all of those words together, if you don't make it to the next few lines. And there is something very, I mean, I, I described this poem to somebody who I was talking to this morning. It's like, you know, an esoteric disc poem. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, there is something remarkable about getting to the end and, and re-encountering that power and the potential of that power. Mm -hmm. uh, of both the central figure of the painting and of the roommate um, without having sort of enough background out of the disc poem part of the poem to judge whether or not that's true or make absolute sense of it, but to believe that the speaker believes it, right? Mm -hmm. It's come around. Um, I think I, I would like to jump back to that first stanza and ask okay. questions about how you got through it. Um, so you mentioned that you had, it had kind of come to you in, in moments. Um, it has a very particular set of, I, I mentioned this parenthetically to you, right? Like I spent longer than I'd like to admit looking for like a poetry form that is syllabically six, seven, ten, three. Uh, <laughs> And um, I, I never found one, um, but you have kept that fairly stable stanza over time. I'm wondering, is that, is that a nonce form that you came up with because you're meaning a form that's invented, that you invented because of how the music of this early, I say gifted, that feels wrong. Um, this sort of like stanza that landed on you also feel mm -hmm. on, but you know, um, I'll <laughs> language for your own experience. Um, is that something that just emerged out of that? You kept the consistency for the purposes of lyricism. How did that come about? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, it's a, it's a nonce and I love syllabics. Um, and so literally the first few lines popped into my head and I wrote them down. I saw there was a little stanza there and it was unusual. So I said, okay, these are the, these are the dimensions. Now I'm going to build every subsequent, subsequent stanza to these specifications, right? So, um, and this is just something I borrow from, from more. This is, you know, I, in the draft, I, I was hoping to kind of do a little play on, on more uh, because moreness is, uh, 
you know, a Rococo um, <laughs> with one O is a Rococo standard and, uh, and more, Marianne Moore, um, M-O-O-R-E, of course, uh, you know, wrote these syllabic nonce poems in an attempt to turn things over and question them and understand them and judge them. And um, I think there's a certain spikiness which, I, which is in that first stanza, which I like to access sometimes, that mode of, of being a little bit difficult and a little bit, you know, um, uh, encountering things with, a, with a, some, some prickly elements. Um, so that's, you know, that's, uh, that's another thing that made it slow going because you can have this, this thing come out of the ether and, and enter your consciousness that you write down and you find out it has this really weird pattern. And, um, and sometimes what makes it so interesting and what makes it stick in your head is the fact that it has this really unusual cadence and an unusual language that you find out really doesn't lend itself to many other, <laughs> many other little collections of words. Uh, and so it's, it's hard to do. That's, you know, so every subsequent stanza has to follow that same pattern if you're as stubborn as I am. Yeah. Um, and you don't want to change the first one, but you make it work. And that's, that's part of the fun for me because I like puzzles. And, and so the fun of syllabics is like solving, you know, you, you, you set the parameters and then for the rest of it, you have to solve that puzzle, the rest of the stanzas. So, yeah. yeah. No, I think that's, um, I think that's super cool. And it does, there is something really, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time sort of working out the mathematics of this and why it feels spiky, but right in the end, mm. uh, I ended up attributing it to your, uh, your history as a jazz musician um, a little bit. Um, I, uh, I won't bother everyone by geeking out about this. I'm always excited to kind of encounter jazz musicians who become writers. I'm a big fan of mm. like Jaden DeWald and, and Will Boast who do a lot of interesting things with sentences that I think are influenced by their work in that i'm i'm wondering if you can rather than my speculating out all of the things that i've i've been thinking about how the music of this works um if you can talk a little bit about how music has influenced this poem and the sort of swing of your poems in general um including with i mean we haven't discussed there's i'd say for a 21st century poem an unusual amount of like uh, self-evident rhyme in it mm -hmm. um, along with um, uh, you know not an entirely unheard of attention to those syllabics we were, you were mentioning but uh, a more than usual commitment to it for sure <laughs> sure yeah you know in a way I was thinking that uh, like syllabics must be the most like jazz of any okay. you know um, it, because there is this you know, there is this initial template, which you can kind of make up yourself. And then you're just, you're just improvising over those, over that template, right? Um, those are your measures and you have certain, you know, chord changes, and then you're just kind of going. Um, I mean, ideally, if, you, if you're going at a certain clip, but certainly that sense of syncopation and that sense of um, strange combinations of things that kind of work, um, you know, I, I, I have a pretty, you know, I, I try to escape the, the metronome of my ear all the time. Um, and in a lot of ways, you know, a trick with syllabics really is uh, to use uh, uh, lines that are an odd number of syllables, you know, or to intersperse them with even numbered syllable lines. Um, 
so that that works. Um, the swing of it too, I think, gets at, and I like that pun by the way, gets at uh, you know the fact that the the fourth line is only three syllables, and so it has that kind of kicked off quality that I wanted so that the that's the shoe line um and the you know the the stanza itself I think you know kind of juts in so that there's a little bit of a lift off that happens at the end hopefully um and so I think that those qualities are just enhanced and the silliness of it is enhanced by the silly silly rhymes you know some of them self-consciously silly and slanted too right the slant rhymes which is also I think kind of jazzy so the whole thing has this you know, it kind of puts the shoe on the other foot um, or kicks it off. It has that that kind of back and forth tossed quality that I was looking for. Um, but that, you know, those are those considerations, the syncopation and then the, you know, the 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 idea of improvising over something that's, just, um, you know, has certain set parameters, um, but that you can play with and improvise on. Um, I think all of those are very, very jazzy jazzy concerns, things that I, that's, that's how I interpret it anyway. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I've, um, my one theory about this poem that I haven't entirely justified is I had a buddy back in the day when I was playing jazz, who was very committed to the idea that like, anytime you ended a lick at the end of a measure, it was going to be wrong uh, that was his charlie parker lesson for life and i think there's something really uh i've been thinking about playing with the six seven ten three there's something about that that never quite lets a measure land but it occasionally ends in kind of uneven enough mathematics that it feels like you've gone around the form or something mm -hmm that mm -hmm. I'm really, really fascinated by. Um, so, you know, get out there and try it, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Aaron, we usually end interviews by asking people, uh, uh, the interviewee, where folks can find you, where they can connect. You have uh, an unusual number of engagements with the arts uh, as a teacher, as a singer, as a podcast host as a poet, um, where would you like people to find you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I do have a website where I, I update sometimes um, <laughs> when I remember. Um, sometimes I forget I have it. Um, and and yeah, and just, you know, subtext. My, my podcast is, um, that's where you can hear me talk about all, all manner of things. But you, it's pretty classic oriented, you know, which classic films, mostly um, classic uh, novels, you know, things that are kind of canonical. Um, but it's every once in a while we break out of that too. But, um, but yeah, so, so subtextpodcast.com, I think is the name of that website maybe, but you could find us on Apple um, or, or any, any podcast uh, site, I believe. And then my website, which is aaronalonic.com. I have a crazy uh, last name in terms of spelling uh, talk about funky jazzy syncopated <laughs> last names um but if you search subtext um then you can find, or if you're watching this i assume you can see, yeah. see what my last name is so yeah we'll put all of that in the text and then at oneweekcritique.com we'll have aaron's pieces up uh for people to download and study um and 
we'll have your name there as well. Um, so Aaron, thank you so much for sitting down with me today and chatting out the swing. Oh, thank you. This is a pleasure. <laughs>